Are you interested in a life in ministry? Are you passionate about the church and how it functions? Do you not get enough of listening to pastors on Sundays? Well, you're in the right place. This is Under the Fig Tree, a podcast for people who are interested in church work. I'm Ben. And I'm Micah. We are two pastors who work at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Join us as we dive into the vocation of pastoral ministry, dig into scripture, and occasionally talk about other stuff like our unquestionable love for the Dallas Cowboys. And of course, we'll be talking about Star Wars. We'll talk to guests about doctrine, traditions, and what makes someone a good candidate for the pastoral office besides being called by God. And we may just help you figure out if this pastor or deaconess stuff is for you. Again, this is Under the Fig Tree from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Hey, everybody out there in the Under Fig Tree podcast land, welcome to another episode. We're great to, we're grateful to be with you, and we're glad for another episode to talk a little bit in our ongoing conversation about Titus. And we have a guest speaker with us today, a guest on the podcast. I am your host, Ben Haupt, and along with me is my co-host, uh, Micah Glenn. You know us already from previous episodes, but we're excited to introduce to you Dr. Tim Seleska. Dr. Seleska is a professor of exegetical theology. He teaches Bible at Concordia Seminary. He's also the Dean of Ministerial Formation. We'll ask him a little bit about that. He has three grown children and some grandchildren, and we'd love to hear about that. I get to see one of his grandchildren, uh, grandchildren growing up a little bit here at church every once in a while. He's a cute little guy. And so, uh, Dr. Seleska, great to have you with us. Welcome to Under the Fig Tree podcast. Oh, thanks, you guys. It's really fun to be here with you, too, and to talk about a lot of stuff, and especially Titus today. Uh, yeah, it was like I told you just a few minutes ago. It's been a while since I was able to delve into this book, so I really appreciate the invitation to think through it with you and talk about it and especially see how it's relevant. What, it, what in the world does it have to do with any of us uh, sitting here today? Well, tell us a little bit about your, your specialty. Uh, what, is your, yeah. what is your specialty? Uh, you have a, a book in the Concordia Commentary series. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I know. So my specialty is Old Testament exegesis. Uh, I was a pastor in, in Cincinnati for 15 years. And while I was there, I attended Hebrew Union College, which is where I got my degree in history of interpretation um, and came here to the seminary and have been teaching in the area of the Old Testament. But specifically, um, I was asked to do the Psalms commentary, and that started me on a kind of a long journey of learning to read and love the Psalms, which actually really helped my teaching in general, uh, my outlook to pastoral ministry, uh, personal devotional life. Um, so something, you know, the research and all the thinking that was involved in that really did have a kind of a broader application, even in how I would approach a New Testament text now is in a sense quite different, I, I think, than when I graduated from the seminary in 82, 1982. Yeah. Well, Two years to... before I was born. I just want yeah, to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that stinks. But... <laughs> I was going to say, we're, we're excited to hear that, but we hadn't heard Micah Glenn's voice yet. And I wanted to ask uh, my co-host, Micah, how he's doing, what's what's new in, 
in Micah's world. How are the Glenn kids doing? Yeah, doing well. The weather is beginning to turn, uh, which means the kids can uh, spend more time outside instead of, you know, running up the walls and things like that and making messes and things like that. I will say my boys have a, a knack, uh, I want to say for destruction, but also for just mm-hmm. making a mess. And and they found some mud the other day. Uh, and Dede, my youngest in particular, man, uh, I didn't get to see it. But my wife said that the mud was so caked up on his legs that she had to, like, scrape it off. Which is, if you ever met my son David, uh, you get it. <laughs> I do have. I want to interject. I lived on campus where you guys are living now for eight years, and for the first time, and I don't know how long, I am sort of envious that you all live together because that neighborhood has just sprung to life with you and your families and your children. I just applaud that so much. You, you know, the houses have been redone. And um, the place is kind of every time I kind of walk around the outskirts, it's sort of alive. And uh, oh man, what a great blessing uh, this campus! It what a great blessing it brings to the campus. And as we move from COVID, I think uh, the energy there will will really radiate out even more than it already is. So I just want to commend you all for living a lot of your life outside or your kids' lives outside at least, because uh, I just think it's it's. It's such a great change from even just a few years ago, really. There's a lot of life on campus, but yeah. I'll, I'll say, you know, this, this pack of kids that runs around, we might just send them down to the Seleska house <laughs> okay. at some point and say, hey, we'll, we'll point them to Wise Avenue and say, yeah. just go in this direction. Keep walking past <laughs> Keep walking. Snooks. You'll find the Seleskas. I'll find the black, black dog. Jack yeah. will be happy to... Uh, greet them to death if they come over there are they will be, would actually be welcome come on in that's fantastic <laughs> uh, no it offers a great dynamic i have some of the younger kids on the street uh and the older ones embrace them take them in watch over them uh and, and allow them to to be kids and express themselves without me and dorothy you know being eagle-eyed parents always trying to check up to see where they are every three or four minutes so yeah it's it's been really great moving over here yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we really enjoy it. Well, great. Let's, uh, let's dive into the text of Titus. I'm going to read Titus chapter two for us, and then we will, uh, dive right into the text. So Titus chapter two, reading from the ESV. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of 
God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Beautiful words from one pastor to another. So, Dr. Seleska, uh, take us into this text. What do you see going on? Uh, what are you hearing in this text? What does this have to say to our listeners, especially as they're thinking about uh, maybe maybe coming to seminary or to study theology at some point or just yeah. to live out the Christian life? Okay, so um, as you were reading it, my mind started going in a million different directions here. Uh, um, one, you know, one of the things that could happen that I I don't know how much to resist or not. I guess I tend to resist it is to look at this. What he's saying is these kind of stern rules. I mean, it's easy to read it and go, boy, uh, this kind of legalistic. Okay, he's he's setting this high benchmark. Now you guys better jump. It's also a temptation to read this in a vacuum without any context and to and to act as if we can stand in a neutral place free of history or context um, and uh, discern what this means for how people should behave. Okay, so I think it's better if we start to take it as, you know, there he's talking to the Christians at Crete and evidently from chapter one. There are certain issues going on with the Christian life um, and what's happening in that congregation. And so as a pastor, uh, Titus, I mean, you can imagine this, you know, Paul gets his phone call from Titus. What's going on here? I don't know how to what do I do? And so Paul begins to help Titus kind of sort through some of those things. And you can, you know, what what I got when I first went through it is this list after list of qualities or characteristics or things. And it can I sort of kind of got overwhelmed. And then you have those passages um, about wives be submissive. OK, that that raises all kinds of antenna. What, you know, right away you start pushing against the text a little more. And then you have the whole thing with slavery. Verse nine, mm. be submissive. Well, in our culture and, our you know, that those are. That's a that's a daunting passage now. What do, what do we do with it? And so there's a lot less. It's a lot less straightforward. I mean, in other words, it's given in a very straightforward way. But how we make our way through it may be a little less straightforward. And that kind of may be an important thing for us to think about. And I always <clears throat> try to use scripture to open up theological conversations or conversations and not shut them down. And so it would be easy to take Paul's list as, hey, this is kind of how it has to be. Let's shut it down. But I think that in even the most problematic places, it can open up conversations between people. And so if you invite the text in 
as kind of a conversation partner and it helps us to kind of think through some of those things a little more so those at least be my initial thoughts i don't know if that makes any sense or raises any questions for you but so that and that's just from what i got from you reading it kind of out loud to me again well even yeah i read it's the same thing you know you read some of these things it's like man that hits hard I mean, for me in particular, there's the one uh, kind of in line, submit to their own hum- husbands. And then it says, you know, wives mm-hmm. working at home. Well, my wife is a deaconess and she's called full time into ministry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what is that saying? And, and and like you said, context specifics, this is Crete, a relatively uh, either a relatively new or a brand new mission of the church where Titus has been placed to kind of go and preach the gospel. And as he's doing it to order uh, their community there uh, to give guidance and instruction. And, and you could again, you could take something like that out of context. And, and people do all the time. And they say, here's more proof uh, that Paul is a, is a chauvinist mm-hmm. and, and ignore all the other places in, in the Pauline epistles where he exalts women, women who work. Mm-hmm. I always forget the name of the couple who owned the, the tent <laughs> making business that Paul is good associates with it. I'm pretty sure that the woman might have been the owner of, of this tent making business. Uh is this Prisca? Is this one thing? Prisca thinking of? and Aquila. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and so, it, like, like you said, uh, we, we, and we did this with uh, Doctor Seifred, uh, and when we first started talking about Titus, we we talked about some isagogical things around the letter and, and gave it some context. So our listeners hopefully have, have listened to that first episode, and so just continue to hold that context close to you, so that when you hear these words and talking about slavery, again, biblical slavery, I think. A ton of work has been done that biblical slavery, American slavery, don't overlap. <laughs> and so, uh, it, it, and so exactly, there there are things to wrestle with. Uh, but like you said, let the context, let the text, and, and let your faith kind of guide you through these troubling things and begin to have conversations to get a deeper understanding. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the things that that I learned coming into seminary. I I had you know as most all seminarians coming into seminary, we've we've read some of the Bible, right? So um, maybe you've maybe you've read Titus before, um, and and you kind of think, oh, I think I know exactly what this is saying. And in some ways, we do. I mean, it, it talks about the coming of Jesus as our great and glorious Savior. A- absolutely, that's crystal clear. But there are some passages where. Um, we really have to kind of slow down our reading and say, maybe I actually don't know what this is saying. And let's sit together as Christians and kind of talk about this. And that's that's a lot of what happened for me in the, the classroom where in our exegetical classes, our, our classes on the Bible. Um, and maybe you can define even what exegesis is for somebody that hasn't been to seminary yet. But but to sit in a classroom and just say, okay, what is this text saying? And just slow down our reading a little bit. I really appreciated how you kind of listed off a couple of those maybe potentially problematic issues and to say, hey, let's let's slow down our reading and talk a little bit. No, yeah, I think that that's really important. One of the things that what what you see in Paul here, when you look at all those words, is a lot of abstractions, okay? Now, abstractions don't have any meaning until you fill them with content. And Mm. some people assume that the content is obvious. 
And so before you can unpack an abstraction, you have to fill it with context and then unpack what it means. And you uh, you fill it with your own beliefs. So, I mean, a good example, I want to get back to verse one eventually, but let's just go to the be submissive to your husband. So people will, um, you know, that's what does that actually look like? Okay, it's kind of abstract. He doesn't give you, now here's the 16 bullet points, what I mean. So people will stand in a neutral place, say, oh, that obviously means that the wife needs to um, obey her husband in simply everything, do whatever he says. And by the way, you know, the husband gets to do what he wants and the wife has to do what he wants. You know, you can, and so um, uh, that's what I'm, you know, a little more specific about when you take something out of context and assume that you know what Paul means, um, you can get in trouble, okay? Um, and so we need to be kind of thoughtful. How are you filling up this abstract concept of being submissive? Um, and and what is Paul trying to get at and how are you understanding him is a much more complex interpretive, pro, interpretive process. And so we shouldn't automatically think that the way you fill that up is the same as how I might. It's the same way um, <laughs> the whole the pastor should be above reproach. So um, uh, this happens all the time, and I think it's germane to this kind of topic, that you sit in a room 500 miles away from the actual situation and look at a piece of paper on, oh, this person was arrested 10 years ago or five years or 15 years ago for a felony. There's no way he can be beyond reproach without thinking, well, wait a minute. Um, first of all, we don't know the situation. We don't know this person. We're making a kind of a in a vacuum judgment versus the person and the congregation that he's going to be serving. Perhaps the congregation knows all about this. He's forgiven. Um, they know this person. And so in that particular place, um, they're not going to be scandalized by what happened in the past. And so in that particular place, in that particular time with this particular person, he does, he is in a sense beyond reproach. Okay. So a lot of people make uh, distant judgments thinking that they know what that word means when really it has to be filled with context of time, place, history, circumstances, all those kinds of things and then so then that that's a more healthy way i think of taking paul's admonition otherwise if you took it in absolute form none of us would be here we're mm -hmm. all sinners so if you're going to do that then you better get out of the judgment business because you're going to be judged too that's kind of, <laughs> i don't know if that makes sense but that's been helpful to me for passages like this yeah, absolutely. It it's just broadening our our ability to read the 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 Bible, the text of the Bible in in a, a more nuanced way, in a way that I think Paul wants the text to be right. to be read in. Um, and and that's the that's the joy of, of really studying the Bible at seminary is uh, you your 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 vision expands for what exactly does Paul mean and, and therefore what does what does God mean yep. uh, in these these passages? Well, take us into um, to, to verse one and, okay. and let's start picking some of this apart. Yeah, I know. Uh, thanks for that. Um, 
So the, let me just read the, that verse. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, there's a couple of kind of interesting things that um, you may not catch uh, unless you're kind of reading it in, in Greek. So first of all, um, the you should be emphasized. Uh, and notice the translation has, but as for you, comma. So it's making a contrast with the previous verses in chapter one, because notice that it uses, um, let's see, they, uh, it, notice it's talking about they, uh, beginning especially at uh, verse 10 of chapter one. They're empty talkers and deceivers. They must be silent. Um, notice they're getting by shameful gain what they should not teach. So it uses that word teaching. And then uh, this testimony is true, rebuke them, um, etc. So they have, notice he's, now Paul is going to contrast for Titus his talk to theirs. And so that's kind of an important issue. And he's going to go into day-to-day -day behavior. That's another kind of issue that we're going to see here. So that when it says that word teach, you see in verse 1, that's a little misleading to me because the word is the general word for to speak. So it's kind of like keep on speaking or maybe a little more informally communicating or I don't know, maybe something like in slang, keep talking up. What is fitting? And then you see that word that's translated as sound doctrine. That's the word for healthy, really. It's And so I think you should keep the metaphorical language. And what's interesting about that word is that it's unique to the pastoral epistles uh, to talk about healthy teaching or doctrine. And I think the reason it's important to stick with the metaphors, because when you read that line, as for you, teach what is fitting or what accords with sound doctrine, immediately in our context, again, what comes to mind is a classroom in which the teacher is in a more formal way um, presenting these uh, doctrinal propositional truths. So you begin to think of doctrine as kind of this, for lack of a better word, this inert iceberg of propositional beliefs that you can pull out and drop on people as you need to. And people think that, that the seminary education then is just a matter of cognitive kind of information. I need, I need to make sure I'm correct. And because of that, the fear is translated to our lay people that they can't witness because they're so scared of getting it wrong. Notice that that's almost a reflex. You gotta be correct. Yep. But I love the metaphor healthy because when you have a healthy physical body, it's, a, it's dynamic, it interacts with the world in a certain way. Um, there, uh, you know, the, um, so, so when you kind of begin to think of your teaching in as, as healthy, then um, it has to do with um, our teaching helps us to see the world in a certain way. It helps us to uh, understand what our relationship with God is, who God is, who we are in relation to God, who we are in relation to each other, how we make our way in this world, so that so that the teaching that we have been given is kind of this living thing. And the danger of heresy is that it can infect in a very real way how we see the world, how we treat other people, how we um, envision God and even our salvation. So 
if you think of it that way, it's not just we're not just conveying these propositional truths to people, but it's a teaching that um, kind of reaches into all areas of our lives. And and that's why Paul moves from there to day to day behavior of people, old men, uh, young men, older women, younger women. Then he goes to slaves and, you know, that he gets down to that level. Um, and so I think that's kind of an important thing to see in the text right away. At least that's one of the things that I uh, got from it as I was wrestling with it. This is not that easy of a text, really. So I don't know if that makes any sense. You got any thoughts about that before I kind of go on? Yeah, and I I wonder, um, I'm, I may be making a, a connection here to uh, your role. I said earlier that you're the dean of ministerial formation. So we don't have a dean of ministerial knowledge. We yeah. we have a dean of ministerial formation and we we we've intentionally in our curriculum said we don't just want to form uh, future pastors or future deaconesses that just know a lot of stuff. We want to form their entire person. So would you could you connect that up a little bit to what you're you're talking about here, what Paul's talking about about sure. the way of life matters? Sure. How do we how do we do that at the seminary and yeah, how does so, that all come together? Uh, that's a great question. So I always kind of think of it like this. Look, we try to embody the truths that we hold so dear. And embody means enflesh them in real life. I mean, you know, that book Theology is for Proclamation, that title always grips me because the whole purpose of our teaching is to be able to bring God's word, the gospel specifically, to people uh, that we serve, both in our neighborhoods and in our church. Um, we and, and that uh, means that it's not just a matter of collecting knowledge, but it's, uh, it's understanding and grasping the truths that God gives us so that we can actually, I take that metaphor, the body of Christ, actually very seriously, so that we can actually be the body of Christ in the world. Um, he doesn't, he's, Paul is not just using that because it's convenient, um, but, you know, since Jesus has ascended into heaven, we're the ones that are his hands and feet and head and heart and mind. Um, and uh, so that's where at the seminary, we want people, of course, to love theology. But if you come here just because you like studying theology, that's not enough. You have to love people and want to serve them with the theology that you are learning here. So you need to incorporate what you learn here into your own experience and into uh, the uh, things that you will do with people in, in ministry. So it's it's a full bodied thing. And um yeah, that so so we're actually kind of looking for people who actually are kind of thinking more holistically, um, your mind and your heart, your head and your hands. Um, and Paul in this text kind of shows the importance of that. So what you teach when that's healthy, that has an effect on how you live, which is what most of this this chapter is about, how you live as as one of God's people. Um in what must have been a situation of a lot of pressure from the new Christians in Crete when you think about it. 
you know, I wasn't a student too, too long ago. Um, and, and one of my favorite parts about our education is the exegesis. I love the language. I love Greek. I love Hebrew. Uh, well, I was blessed to begin learning languages from a, a young age. So that's probably a a bleed over. And and so we no longer require uh, MDiv students to learn German and Latin. I wouldn't have cared. I would have embraced it. And I have classmates who are probably like, be quiet. Greek and Hebrew were enough. But but we get like these phrases from both that, that have to do with uh, a lot of the ones that are relatively important. There was always the Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, mm-hmm. which again, I don't know Latin. Uh, so don't judge me too harshly. <laughs> but I, I believe it's like the law of what is prayed is what is believed. Right. So uh, the way you worship, uh, all of that is informed by what you believe about God. But correct me if I'm wrong. There's also a a Lex Vivendi, which goes along with those other two, which is also what is lived. And so our conduct as Christians uh, isn't exclusive to Sunday morning, how we just how we get together and behave around each other and put on a smiley face for Sunday morning. But that the, the law of prayer and belief bleeds out into our lives beyond the sanctuary into the world so that when people encounter us as christians our conduct reflects uh jesus's sacrifice for us what he's accomplished for us the life that he's given us so that hopefully uh it's appealing (laughs) to the people outside and they want to be a part of this body with us yeah good to quote my favorite author uh, that expands on that um uh, what you believe is what you know is what you see is what you do is who you are Mm. So, uh, you know, here and here's a great example. We pride ourselves in understanding justification. Right. We talk about how we're the church of justification and we got that doctrine down. That doesn't make it. We don't always, though, embody it and actually forgiving other people. (laughs) I mean, think about how many church or churches are fractured by not understanding what grace actually means or looks like. And so that's what I'm talking about. You can you can read everything there is to read and you'll be have the opportunity here about justification. But if you're not forgiving other people, that's where your theology doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just kind of think about that. Uh, that's that that's always been a powerful thing for me. You actually take pride in a teaching and then it's very you you don't actually embody it in your life. So that's what we're kind of that's what I'm kind of talking about here when we're talking about formation. And what's what's interesting with what Paul is saying in in Titus 2 is that this kind of looks different for different people, right? Good. So he's he's going to take us through a number of different examples of yep. uh these different people and how what this looks like in in daily life. So uh, tell us a little bit more yeah. about some of those so, particular uh, people. Thank, yeah, thanks for that. So what you had here, I kind of looked at these. You have certain words uh, that uh, have to do with self-control, like that first one, older men, which translates sober-minded. That's kind of from the word to be sober versus to be drunk. It's based on that word. So there's a kind of a self-control word. Um, you also have uh, sensible behavior words. That's that. Uh, I don't know if they how they translate here. Um, so you have the self-control word, uh, the the. Um, I don't know where the. So let's see. I'm looking at the Greek word here. So you have the um, the word that translate often sensible or moderate. 
And then you also have modesty words that, uh, so the fitting behavior, the honorable words. So you kind of have those categories. Notice, uh, I guess the main point when you look at them, even when you look at them in English, they are relational affective words, right? Um, so that when you're talking uh, dignified, sober-minded, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness, older women, um, reverent in behavior, not slanderers or uh, slaves of wine. Um, those kinds of things are affective qualities that uh, Paul that that Paul's urging Titus to talk up to communicate to people. So it's on a more informal level that this kind of kind of quotes teaching goes on, not in a classroom so much. All right, and and I mean assumed here is that, that Titus is going to live this walk, walk the walk as he talks the talk as well, so that people can see what all these things mean. Um, and you're right. I think when we get to, I mean, if you want to wrestle a little bit with uh, wives be submissive, submissive to their own husbands, I can kind of give you my take on that. But I'll, at least I'll pause here to make sure we're on track with where you want to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm tracking. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I definitely want to hear your take because I also, I, when I'm speaking to young men, I tell them my take. Uh, I good. always relate texts like this back to Ephesians 5. Okay, good. And I say, well, look at this section for wives and then look at this massive section for husbands. Uh, because right. if, if you're going to have a wife that can be submissive to you, you got to be somebody worthy of being submissive to. Okay. Uh, so it puts, in my mind, it puts the responsibility of all of this on the shoulders of the husband, not solely because, you know, marriage is truly one flesh partnership. But like you said earlier, it's not a, a wise being submissive to their husbands. Isn't this a license for men to just be whoever they want and come home to, you know, whatever they think their wife should be. And, and so, I, yeah, we definitely want to hear your take, but uh, okay. uh, verse 11 is like the, the cause for all of this uh, conduct behavior. So I, I don't want to leave out those last couple of verses as well, but please okay. uh, give yeah. us your take. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can only build on what you said. So you said it really great. I don't have too much to add, except when you go back to that Ephesians, which is where I was going to go, it says, husbands love your wives. But what it doesn't tell you is what that looks like or means, because Paul leaves it up to the Christian families and men and women to uh, express that in their lives. And I think the reason he does that is because what that looks like in every marriage, marriage relationship is going to look a little different. Um, there's obviously overlap, but um, how I love my wife or what my wife needs from me is different than Dorothy or different than Selena, right? I mean, because we're different people we have different dynamics all those kind of things the wise husband knows what his wife needs to know she's loved right uh the foolish husband ignores it knows it mm. so the the first thing that a husband does is learn okay what does my wife need for me to feel loved and then it may be very there's certain things that are totally i'm sure very unique to our relationship and your relationship micah's and yours, Ben, that no one else shares. It's that intimacy. So I think the same thing can be said for, okay, wives submit to your husbands. What that might look like in my relationship is different than yours, different than yours. So that husbands and wives begin to work this out specific to the needs of the family and all those kinds of things. So my wife handles all the money. 
she does. She pays the bills. So in one sense, is she not submitting to me? But I don't want to do it, first of all. <laughs> but second of all, we've kind of, you know, we and and sometimes when we have arguments over money, what okay, I'm the head of the house, I should be able to but but wait a minute, she's taking on the task of paying the bills. So how do I show love in that specific instance? And how does she show, okay, proper uh, this kind of dynamic of putting yourself under? So it's not easy. So you we sit down, you have these talks and look at expectations. And, and as a Christian woman, Diane kind of understands our relationship and those roles. Um, and so I think that's how I wrestle with these things. You have to wrestle with it in specific concrete instances and not in overall platitudinous judgments. Um, and so it would be wrong, I think, for me to, let's say, go into Mike and Selena's house and accuse Selena of not submitting to you in any particular ben and Selena. I have <laughs> on on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm I'm like you guys. My wife works outside the home all the time, and so we yep. have to divide house duties and different things like that. Um, and when you guys have kids, it gets really, really hard. I I totally get that. It's a little easier for me, but that's how why I think it's important that in an issue like that, you could really have a deep conversation theologically with other people, right? So this would be an place where I'm talking about the scriptures enable conversations. So how would you as a couple wrestle through this? How do you wrestle with it? Where, where are your weaknesses? Where are your sins? Where are your strong points? Um, and um, those kinds of issues this is how I would handle the text, treat it and begin to interpret it. I like that. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier about abstractions. And, and Paul in, leaves some things that he says maybe intentionally a bit abstract for us to uh, think, OK, Paul has told me to do this, but now I need to kind of figure out how do I live this out as one who is baptized, who has the Holy Spirit, uh, who who has been given wisdom um, and and do so, of course, in in love. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, then he makes this shift to talk about Jesus uh, and the whole reason of why we live kind of distinct lives or why we pay attention to to what we're doing in life. So so walk us through some of that. So verse eleven, yeah, there's that hinge and. Um, when we kind of order things, we always say gospel and then law, justification, sanctification. But Paul kind of holds it for last. I mean, it's always been in the background, but now it comes with kind of a, um, I mean, no, notice how it becomes more prominent. All of a sudden, okay, you have all these things that talk about how we live our daily lives as Christians. In And notice he, he admits, hey, the older man versus the younger man versus the older woman, younger woman, all these, you know, you, there, there are different phases in your life and all those kinds of things. And then uh, he talks about for the grace of God has appeared, and that's the word for epiphany. All right. And so 
he's not just talking about the inner spiritual revelation of the heart, I don't think. I think he's talking about the actual uh, birth and ministry and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. So here's where you see grace embodied. Um, you know, grace is not just an abstract concept or a nice idea. God actually showed his grace um, in Jesus, uh, bringing salvation um, to all people. Um, uh, and now let's see what the word is here. Oh, uh, train. Yeah. Then you go. So, so you have to notice, uh, I like that cause you have that one sentence and it's, it's kind of the highlight of the chapter. Right. And, um, then it's followed by train. It kind of repeats in summary, what was the verses one through 10 training us to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. All right. So he kind of summarizes the main ideas. And then he says, in the present age, and I love that because it keeps us in the present, but also mindful that we have a future. There's a future age. So um, the grace that God showed us in the resurrection of Jesus has given us a foretaste of that age. But now we're in the present. Now we have to be concerned with how we live. Um, so I, I kind of like that, that uh, he gives us the motivation in verse 11 and now reminds us that we have responsibilities in the present age. And now he just goes, see, see, see the present age waiting as we wait. So there's a particular perspective on our life in this present age that other people do not have. So God's people are in this stance of actually waiting. And I think too often we forget that. Um, part of our present life is waiting. And um, it's very distinct and lovely because it's waiting for, and notice how he says, our blessed hope. And um, uh, our blessed hope, uh, then he uses the word again, epiphany, the appearing, um, of God, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he appeared once, he's going to appear again. He's get, So notice in verse 11, 12, and 13, three verses, he gets the present and future and the past and the future together. You know, there's two appearings of Jesus. In the middle, we wait. We live in this present age, but we wait, but we in this present age wait and look forward. So Christians are forward-looking people, always future-oriented, just as Israel in the Old Testament was always pushed move toward the future. Um, and then he kind of sums it up, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all. So I notice he reminds us right here at the end of the lovely forgiveness that we have after talking so much about our behavior and in the background is how we don't measure up so often, how we mess all these things up, don't live self-controlled, sober, sensible, honorable, dignified lives. I mean, Christian people are often a mess, right? We're kind of a motley crew on all kinds of different levels, um, fighting with each other. So it's good to be reminded of the grace God has given us. But see, Paul doesn't let us off the hook for our how we should live now and pay attention. So often we say, hey, you know, you may be miserable sinners, but you're all forgiven. So you go away unchanged. So we're off the hook. But forgiveness actually means something in the present age for how we live. Um, and uh, so that's kind of some of my takeaways, at least from the chapter. I think that's great. I, I like how the verse, when he begins to talk about the grace of God, there is uh, in 
in all of the sense there's a universality to yeah. jesus's sacrifice Good. the sins of the yeah. entire world right and and of course uh that is conditioned upon faith and believing in that promise which which also happened to be a, a gift from god <laughs> through the holy spirit and so it, the condition isn't left uh to our own ability to grab onto it gratefully otherwise <laughs> where would we be we'd still be lost mm-hmm. um and especially speaking to this new community of Christians, uh, continue to express that universality that sure the Jesus' crucifixion happened in this part of the world, but it affects you and mm-hmm. in, in, in your part of the world. And it's sufficient for you in your part of the world. And that continues on. And, and I'll admit, I, I've not a bias, but I've I. I grew a great concern for outsiders when I was a missionary in Ferguson because I mean that's the only those are the only people I dealt with on a, a day-to-day pe- basis were were people on the outside of the church uh and the, and this conduct again uh, what what we have to recognize because the responsibility of the gospel and spreading it and and hoping that people grab onto it does fall to the church not to the outsider mm-hmm. and if our con- if our conduct doesn't reflect uh, what we believe and outsiders can point to us and call us hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Usually we, we get overly defensive uh, instead of apologetic and not just defensive apologetic, but actually apologizing for, Hey, you know what? That isn't a conduct uh, that reflects my Christian beliefs. I'll try to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, it, whenever that happens, it only continues to tear down the possibility of a, a real relationship between you and the outsider and then the outsider with Jesus and so that's why, again, for a new Christian community, because the entire island of Crete, they're not the church yet. It's, mm-hmm. Who knows how big the group is, but it's oh. not the entire island. But the desire for Titus, the t- desire for Paul, and now the desire for these new Christians should be right. uh, the same desire for us. That should be that more and more people come into the body of Christ, not because we need more people to make us powerful or to make God powerful, but yep. it reflects the desire, universal sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Yep. Yeah. I mean, notice that uh, Paul says that right in the middle when it's so that an opponent, the reason you have, you act like this so that an opponent may be put to shame. Mm. I mean, that's such an affective word. So the opponent may become embarrassed actually is another translation for that. Um, having nothing evil to say about us. So that that is a very, that statement also um, uh, convicts because when I look at our church, uh, not just our little LCMS, but Christians right. at large, um, people have a lot of bad things to say about us. <laughs> and uh, like you said, Micah, uh, we are quick to kind of justify or things rather than humbly kneeling and asking for forgiveness and and help with uh, uh, being what our Lord wants us to be in this present age. Yeah, that's good. Beautiful stuff. I I'm thinking about the the beginning of this chapter and the end of this chapter, and it it's about taking all of what we've just been talking about, and Paul is basically saying, teach this. Mm -hmm. Um, pastors should be teachers. And it it strikes me, uh, Tim or Dr. Seleska, um, that, that you are an amazing teacher. Um, (laughs) it's very, it's very clear. And, and, um, 
you both you taught both Micah and me, um, and and we we sat at your feet. Uh, but it strikes me that your love of teaching just just comes out of everything that you do and everything that you are. What what is it about teaching? What do you love about teaching? Because I see you come alive in the classroom. I see you come alive just in in this interaction. What is it that you love about teaching that that pastors and deaconesses should think that is a calling that I want to strive to. I want to be a teacher. Well, that's a deep and thoughtful question. Um, uh, part, I think a lot of it is relational, the dynamic of being in the classroom with people and seeing if I can be interesting for an hour for the whole semester, you know, a couple times a week uh, with these scriptures. Um, and uh, having, you know, so that when the class, when I kind of get it right and there's good conversation, good questions, you can see that people are engaged. Um, I don't know, that always has been powerful for me, a powerful kind of experience. Um, I like the, the aspects of the study and preparation. I still spend an awful lot of time beforehand I find that satisfying and I always I do because I grow personally um, in that and I like to always take what I've learned personally and kind of share it I get excited about that hey look at this um, kind of consider this this way and I for whatever reason um, I find that really fun to do and an interesting kind of dynamic I think when I was in the parish, too, I loved teaching Bible class and I loved preaching. I loved those tasks because um, it engaged me in deep study of the word of God and then conversation with uh, some very, very smart lay people who weren't afraid to push back and push me. And I really benefited from that. Um, and so I think that people who may feel called to ministry, I think I said this earlier, you have to love people and you have to want to be around them. Um, and you have to want to relate to them and you have to, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, love your Lord and, uh, want to serve him in this way. So again, see all, those are all kind of affective attributes, uh, that the seminary can't teach, uh, you know, so I don't know, those are some of my, my own thoughts. You guys both have all that that affective kind of stuff that makes you such obviously um, amazing guys as well, great colleagues to serve with, which I am deeply humble and appreciative that the new guys are coming up. We have some great people. <laughs> well, I think that it's, I, I think that it is something that you kind of catch from, from other people, right? So you're, Micah and I were both shaped and formed by our experience uh, at Concordia Seminary, we're shaped and, and formed by our pastors and by our mm -hmm. undergraduate uh, experiences as well. But um, you catch it from being in the classroom and, and watching uh, your favorite teachers teach. And you, yeah. you think not only I want to teach the content that they're teaching me, but but I want to teach in that way. Yeah. Um, and and Paul Paul was saying the exact same things, right? He can yeah. say, "Imitate me, I'm imitating Christ." Yeah. Um. And and there's something really beautiful about 
about being in a classroom at seminary and uh, growing in growing in faith and knowledge now, and life. I think that that's an important model thing. That's why we have ment- a mentoring program and all those kinds of things. I mean, when you think about it, um, if you are a baseball player, want to be a good baseball player, you need a coach. And the coach you, comes alongside you. Uh, you throw a few pitches. He corrects you. You listen. Uh, you're what's known as teachable. Um, you work at it and you imitate so that, you know, you hear out when you read about spring training, they bring in all the old timers. Why do they do that? Because there's this fund of knowledge and mentorship that goes on. And all those younger guys love it when, um, well, Lou Brock's passed on now, but Lou Brock and Bob Gibson and Red Shandies and all those guys would come because they'd learn so much. And, and it was actually a kind of, it's kind of a mentoring atmosphere. And I think that's, a great way that we should actually think about seminary education. It's coming alongside each other, your fellow classmates, but also the profs, also the staff, and um, uh, give yourself to this process, like you said, of of formation, uh, both in the classroom and in all the activities outside of the classroom. It It does, when you look at a guy that comes in first year versus a guy that graduates fourth year, in some cases, the difference is startling. In every case, the difference is significant. Um, when a person gives themselves, the Holy Spirit really does uh, do wonderful things uh, because of all the stuff that happens uh, at the seminary. Yeah, that's really, I think, an important point to emphasize. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. It makes me want to go teach something. And um, there, there is just uh, great joy in the, the vocation that, that God calls uh, pastors and deaconesses to teach the word of God and, and to shape people in their, their love for their Lord. Um, we're grateful for the time that you made for us. It was very clear that you, uh, you did the preparation and you had lots of, of great notes. An Old Testament guy bringing his Greek New Testament in and Diving into a, a I'm interested in Greek, Ben. Don't ever forget that. There you go. That's awesome. Most of my grad school was Greek. <laughs> of course it was. And that's the that's the beauty of our of yeah. our faculty is there's there's so much depth there. Um, so thank you. Fantastic conversation. And we hope, listeners, that this has been helpful for you. This has been another episode of Under the Fig Tree. We'll catch you on another one. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under the Fig Tree. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus shows his followers how to care for his people. Oftentimes, this includes sharing the word in intimate moments of personal conversation like the Samaritan woman at the well. At other times, it's sharing the word with crowds like the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes, it's just being there for people when they are experiencing the worst moments of life, like when Jesus was there for Jairus when his daughter died. It's gathering his disciples around a table of bread and wine to hear, this is my body, this is my blood. Whether it's as a deaconess sharing the word with the sick, or as a pastor preaching the word and administering the sacraments, being there for people at these intimate moments in life is something that Jesus is calling many more people to do. In Under the Fig Tree, we want to bring you into these moments with us, and maybe you begin to see yourself in one of these roles or Feel yourself being called into service of the church. If you want to find out more about what it means to be a pastor or deaconess, visit us at csl.edu. And of course, keep listening to Under the Fig Tree.